It's the Bits and Pieces podcast. Hello and welcome to the Bits and Pieces podcast for July 2022. Now I was a little bit worried that we might be short on news this month, what with Holyrood being in recess, but as it turns out, not so much. I'm Fiona McGregor from the Indie Live podcast team and if I had to pick one word to describe July, I think it would be meltdown. Parliament, the PM, the Tory party, the unionists and the climate. So let's start with this clip from journalist Lewis Goodall, which is quite a good summary of how things started to get very hot under the collar. But how did we get here? Well, on Thursday night, this letter emerged from the then Deputy Chief Whip Chris Pincher. He said that he drank too much at the Carlton Club. He resigned. It later transpired he was accused of groping two men, something he denies. Now, Downing Street said that the Prime Minister considered the matter closed and that there'd be no further action. But on Friday, one of Chris Pincher's Carlton Club accusers made a formal complaint. Mr Johnson was therefore forced to suspend Mr Pincher from the Conservative whip. The question of what the PM knew about previous allegations about Pincher then becomes central. And at this point, Downing Street said this, the Prime Minister was not aware before the appointment of any specific allegations. Indeed, this was the line that Number 10 had briefed to ministers to defend on the airwaves over the weekend. Now, in the meantime, the newspapers were full of allegations about Mr. Pincher apropos other incidents, which Mr. Pincher also denies. By Monday, despite all of that, the line was still the same. Yet by later in the day on Monday, the line from Downing Street had subtly changed again, now saying that the Prime Minister was not aware of allegations that were either resolved or did not progress to a formal complaint before Pincher became Deputy Chief Whip. But then today, there came this letter, tweeted first thing this morning by Simon MacDonald, the former head of the Foreign Office, blowing much of that apart. He said that Mr Johnson was briefed in person. There was a formal complaint. Allegations were resolved only in the sense the investigation was completed. Mr Pincher was not exonerated. And lo and behold, this afternoon, later, the Downing Street line changed again. The Prime Minister had been briefed, after all, he just forgot. Last week, when fresh allegations arose, the Prime Minister did not immediately recall the conversation in late 2019 about this incident. As soon as he was reminded, as soon as he was reminded, the Number 10 press office uh, corrected their public lines. So the position is quite clear. Uh, further inquiries will be made. But the position is that the Prime Minister acted with probity at all times. The Prime Minister at six o'clock tonight then apologised, saying he wished he'd acted on the briefing his Downing Street had for days said he never received. And behind all of this, the Ministerial Code and the Civil Service Code each have embedded within them that the Prime Minister and his spokespeople have to tell the truth. Remember, all of this comes in the context of his press team already having to apologise for misleading journalists only weeks ago after Partergate. And where the Prime Minister has lost not just one, but two ethics advisers, hasn't found a third, and is under investigation for potentially misleading Parliament. Now, if the Pincher episode were the only story, we just wouldn't be here. The reason this could be lethal is that we've been here before. A pattern, a serious story fusing with questions about standards from the very top, about how the very top handles these stories and what they tell us. Wallpapergate, Owen Patterson, 
Partygate, now this. And the biggest question of all, behind them all, lurking behind all of these political problems, can we, can you, the public, believe what Number 10 Downing Street and the Prime Minister are saying? Well, I don't think we're in any doubt about the answer to that one. Given that it's only a matter of weeks that the Prime Minister was apologising and abjectly throwing himself on our mercy because of Partygate, and there was every indication that he was about to go into his oh-I'm-so-sorry routine again, but I don't think he'd judged the mood of the public or the mood of the House at this point. And here is Alistair Campbell pretty much summing it up. We're seen as a global joke at the moment. I've been doing interviews with radio and television in different parts of the world. They think we are a global joke. They think Johnson is a global joke. And yes, he's got the cabinet support. There are very good people in the Conservative Party. They're not in the cabinet. Why are they not in the cabinet? Because Boris Johnson has deliberately surrounded himself with third-rate and fourth-rate people who, frankly, would not have got a job in the cabinet of any other prime minister in history. Nadine Dorries, Dominic Raab, Priti Patel, they wouldn't have got a job carrying Margaret Thatcher's handbag. They wouldn't have got a a job polishing John Major's shoes. These are second-rate, third-rate people with a fifth-rate prime minister. And I think the country now knows that. They are the only people propping him up. And the sooner they find a spine or find a soul or find a bit of moral conscience and get rid of that lying, crooked charlatan who sits at that cabinet table and disgraces this country and disgraces Downing Street and disgraces every principle that most people in public office aspire to, then the better this country will be. Now, when my teammate Marlene and I were working on one of our podcasts, which we'll tell you about a little bit later on, we got a message on Discord from our teammate Steve, which simply said, Sunak and Javid have resigned. Johnson is toast. So obviously we didn't get any more work done for the rest of the evening. We're too busy watching the drama as it unfolded. But the one person who didn't seem to understand that he was toast was Johnson himself. The following day he attended a liaison committee at which he made the astonishing revelation that he had had unaccompanied meetings with Russian agents while he was foreign secretary. There was a little Twitter clip doing the rounds which showed one of his officials sitting behind him writing what appeared to be the word STOP in large letters, circling it and passing him that piece of paper because clearly at this point he was wading into a whole world of trouble on top of the trouble he was already in. By this point, about 50 of his ministers and aides had already resigned. Yvette Cooper, chair of the Home Affairs Select Committee, I think, then tabled an urgent question in Parliament. Not about what he knew about Pincher, not about whether he went to parties, not even about how much his wallpaper cost, but about whether he had compromised national security at a time when Russian agents were carrying out Novichok attacks. Thank you, Mr Speaker. We've sought this UQ despite the meltdown in the government because it goes to the heart of our national security. Yesterday, the Prime Minister admitted to the Home Affairs and Public Accounts Committee chairs that in April 2018, as Foreign Secretary, he met with the former KGB officer Alexander Lebedev, father of Lord Lebedev, in Italy without any officials, without any security. He went there straight from a NATO meeting where the top item on the agenda was Russia. At the height of the Salisbury poisoning crisis, after Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia had been attacked, and before Charlie Rowley and Dawn Sturgis had been exposed to the remaining Novacek. 
This was a chemical weapon attack by Russian agents on British soil that targeted two British residents, had life-changing effects for a British police officer, and killed a British citizen. Mm -hmm. On the 20th of May this year, Alexander Lebedev was sanctioned by the Canadian government, a Five Eyes partner of the UK, for being one of the 14 identified people who have directly enabled Vladimir Putin's senseless war in Ukraine and bear responsibility for the pain and suffering of the people of Ukraine. The UK has not yet sanctioned him. The charges against the Prime Minister are not just about lack of integrity, they are about complete disregard for basic national security and the patriotic interests of this country. And those charges lie not just with the Prime Minister, but with all of those who have enabled him and covered up for him on this issue. So, did the Foreign Office, the Home Office and the Security Service know about this meeting in advance? Was a detailed record made after the event uh, of the meeting? Because there are rumours that the Foreign Secretary was too drunk to properly remember. Is that true? There are also rumours that Alexander Lebedev was trying to arrange a phone call from the meeting with the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. Is that true? Did that phone call happen? The record of ministers' interest says the Foreign Secretary accepted hospitality in Italy for himself and a guest, but he travelled home alone. Who was that guest, and did that put him in a compromising position? The Prime Minister referred yesterday to several meetings with Alexander Lebedev without officials. When were the others? Were any of them while he was Prime Minister? And the Shadow Security Minister has been asking for confirmation that this meeting happened for months. So why have Home Office Ministers, Cabinet Office Ministers and Foreign Office Ministers all been covering up? It is bad enough covering up for parties and breaking the law, but covering up over national security is a total disgrace. It puts all our safety and security at risk. It's not just the Prime Minister, it is the whole government that is letting the country down. By the following morning, Johnson, well, he didn't actually resign, but he did appear to accept that a new leader was required for the party. The resignation of 50-odd ministers and officials threw the whole of Parliament into chaos. There were committee meetings that couldn't go ahead because nobody knew who the minister was. There were ministers turning up at the dispatch box, having been newly appointed, knowing nothing about their brief, not being able to answer any questions. I'm delighted to say that the SNP MPs saw this as a fantastic opportunity to have a bit of fun and score a few points. Got Alison Thulis, Dave Dugan, John Nicholson and Pete Wishart. Mr Speaker, it's good to see the Paymaster General, one of the last remaining living crew on the ghost ship HMG. <laughs> so in an, effort, in an effort to assist the burden of, on the skeleton crew that remain, would perhaps you like to arrange for the signing of a Section 30 order yeah, to begin yeah, the yeah. process of moving some of the functions of government to a fully functioning set of ministers in Holyrood? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I point out to the Minister that we do in fact have functioning government within the United Kingdom. We have a functioning government in Edinburgh and we have a functioning government in the Senate in Cardiff and where government does not function across these islands in Westminster and in Northern Ireland they have one thing in common and it's the dead malign hand of this Tory government so what possible confidence can the people of these islands the people who want to stay in this broken union and the millions of us who don't what confidence can we have in who is coming next because they all stood by and watched what this Prime Minister did for six months or more John Littleson. Uh, Thank you, Mr Speaker. As the uh, Prime Minister limps off into the history books, his name up there in the pantheon of greats alongside the Duke of Portland and Spencer Percival, can he uh, update us on his defenestration honours list? How many of his cronies 
Willianople. Can we expect him? Can we expect him to surpass Harold Wilson with a lavender list of dodgy donors, obsequious courtiers, and pinchers by nature? Pete Wishart. Ever so much, Mr. Speaker, and I'm sorry I wasn't in my place last week to enjoy all the fun, but I don't know what those 148 Tory MPs were possibly thinking about. Don't they know that Scotland needs this Prime Minister? We've got a referendum to win, and we need him in place because he is the best recruiting sergeant that we have ever had. So come on, Tory MPs, think about the Scottish national interest and let the big dog roam free, unneutered. So, Mr Speaker, we need a debate about the opportunities Scotland can secure with being unshackled from this place. Could you imagine any other successful, resource-rich country in the world being asked to forgo all its own internal democracy to be run by this place? This morally bankrupt failed state they'd be laughed all the way out of the United Nations. But that's what Scotland has. A Prime Minister who we didn't vote for doing things that we profoundly disagree with. Now, although he was talking tongue-in-cheek, I do take a little bit of issue with what Pete Wishart said there about needing Boris Johnson, the big dog in place for the Scottish independence movement. We don't need him. The fact he exists at all is enough. Devolution won't protect us from people like him, and the next one could be worse. The next government could be even more far-right. The point is that Scotland has not voted Tory since 1955. There is no leader that they can put up, certainly not from the current crowd, that's going to make any difference to that desire for independence. So we'll leave Westminster sweltering in the, the heat just now and head back up to Scotland. We've had that date that we were looking for, the 19th of October 2023, for the proposed India Ref 2, and a bit of a rocky road to get there, but we have had a route map laid out by the First Minister. been quite obvious that the British media has been taken totally unawares by this turn of events. The fact they've still been asking some of the questions from 2014, much to actually the mystification sometimes of the people who are having to answer them, they've not managed to move at all in 10 years since then but also very little understanding of how much the landscape has changed. Still, they are trying to get to grips now with the path we've chosen, the Supreme Court, what will happen if the court case doesn't go our way. So in the next section, we'll be having a look at some of those discussions. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. First Minister has promised a series of papers setting out all the key issues as we go into the second referendum. The first two of those papers have already been issued and they were launched with a press conference followed by quite a lengthy Q&A. Mainstream media covered bits of the First Minister's comments, but generally not the Q&A. So IndyLive podcast team have podcast versions of both of the launch events You can listen to those on our website, which is podcasts.independencelive.net or wherever you get your podcasts, just by looking back the last couple of episodes of the Scottish Independence Podcast. And if you don't already subscribe to it, do that because put out a podcast every Friday and often little extras like that as well. You can also read the papers themselves on the Scottish Government website. If you just search for Building a New Scotland, you'll get them there. 
It's possibly a sign that Westminster is rattled because they've already tried to get the court case thrown out. Luckily for us, the Scottish government has won the first skirmish in that battle. The UK's motion has been denied. I think the basis of their motion was that it was a hypothetical question. It's been decided that that's nonsense, so that's great. We're expecting the court case to take place in over two days, I think it is, in October this year. So we will know fairly quickly whether it is lawful for the people of Scotland to ask question, even if that question is related to something which is reserved. So it's going to be a fascinating case. Radio 4 did a series of interviews which are worth having listened to. I'm sure you can get it on uh, BBC Radio 4 Catch Up. But we're going to just have a little look at a couple of them. First of all... Neil Gray, and he's being quizzed about the court case. Obviously, I'm not going to uh, prejudge the outcome of the court's deliberations. We respect that process. But yes, if that doesn't find in our favour, which certainly we hope that it does, then the first thing is that it proves that the thought that the UK is a voluntary association of nations Uh, where self-determination allows uh, a composite part of that association of nations to determine its own future uh, is no longer the case uh, because there is no democratic or constitutional route that would allow you to for a a, a nation, a composite nation, uh, to be able to determine its own future. I sincerely hope uh, that the Scottish Parliament is, uh, has got the power uh, to do that. If we are uh, shown not to have that power by the Supreme Court, and obviously we will respect that judgment, uh, then yes, we still want to ensure that we can honour the overwhelming mandate that was given to us last year by the people of Scotland uh, to be able to determine our own future. And we'll do that through the process of uh, the next uh, UK general election. The next UK general election. In the event that the Supreme Court says you can have an advisory referendum, you can organise a referendum, that's up to you, but it doesn't bind the hands of the Westminster government. And the Westminster government said, well, we're, we're not respecting this referendum. We'd advise people not to bother voting in it. It doesn't have any... It's legal to have it, but it's just advisory and we're not going to take any notice of it. In that event, if you won the referendum, obviously we would be in the in the middle of quite a big constitutional argument, but... Is there anything you could do in that in that position if, if Westminster just said we don't advise people to bother with this referendum? Uh, I have to say that the Brexit referendum in 2016 uh, and the Scottish Parliament uh, referendum that established the devolution process in, in 1997 and the referendum, the independence referendum in 2014, were all on the same basis that we're proposing this one to but be, they which all... is consultative. Uh, and then it's up to the Scottish government and the UK government to legislate, uh, to enact what has been uh, said by the people of Scotland. If the UK government were to turn around and suggest, as I would imagine uh, would have been crazy for them to suggest, uh, the devolution referendum or the last independence referendum or the Brexit referendum, that they were going to turn their nose to the wishes of the people of Scotland, uh, doesn't that make the case for independence even better than ever I could? Does it worry you that the polls are not showing decisive support for independence at the moment? Because this might be something that the UK government will look at when they decide whether to resist your plan or to to ride with your plan. There's a democratic principle at stake here, Evan, and that is that last year the people of Scotland took part in an electoral poll. They took part in a democratic event. It was the Scottish Parliament elections where they sent a majority of MSPs Uh, with a mandate in their manifesto to hold a second referendum to the Scottish Parliament. There has never been uh, as many votes 
or as many MSPs in support of independence or a, or a, a referendum on independence as there has been in this parliament. Uh, and uh, the UK government, which, to be fair, at the moment, you know, we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill going through uh, the, the parliament at the moment, which is trying to disregard uh, elements of democracy and the rule of law uh, regarding the Brexit process. I accept that they're hardly the bastions of democracy or the rule of law themselves, but I think democracy is at stake here. They need to respect the outcome of the Scottish Parliament elections last year uh, and allow the people of Scotland to have the say on their future that they voted for. Next, we'll hear from Lord Sumption, who was a Supreme Court Justice from 2012 to 2018. I've got no inside information about this, and it's always dangerous uh, to predict the outcome of a case when you haven't actually heard the arguments on either side. But it's actually a very difficult course that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has charted for herself. Uh, To have a referendum, uh, you need legislation. Uh, She accepts that, and she wants to put a bill through the Scottish Parliament. The problem is uh, that uh, constitutional relationship between England and Scotland uh, is a reserved matter under the Scotland Act, which means that the Scottish Parliament has no power to legislate uh, for anything uh, that affects uh, the constitutional relationship between the two parts of the United Kingdom. Now, I imagine that the argument will be, well, a referendum doesn't uh, affect the relationship between England and Scotland uh, because... It's merely advisory. It's essentially uh, a grand assessment of the state of Scottish opinion, which in itself uh, achieves uh, nothing. So there's no reason why we shouldn't do it. The problem about that is going to be a decision which the Supreme Court made in October last year when the Scottish Parliament passed uh, a very elaborate piece of legislation designed to incorporate the the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child into Scottish law. The Supreme Court held that certain provisions of that Scottish legislation were outside the power of the Scottish Parliament, not because they directly contravened any matter which was reserved to the United Kingdom, but because they put pressure on the United Kingdom Parliament and Government to do something on a reserved matter, which they might not choose to do. So that's a precedent which would have to be overcome in order to uh, for for this to overturn it. They would have to distinguish that, yes. I suppose... The difficulty for Nicola Sturgeon's case is that on the one hand, she has to argue this isn't binding on Westminster, so it's not out of, it's not a reserve matter. And on the other hand, we've just heard Neil Gray saying this is obviously in effect binding on Westminster, even though it isn't formally binding. And so the Supreme Court would have to sort of weigh up those two sides of it. Well, yes, the Supreme Court would have to consider whether it is lawful to pass legislation designed to put pressure on Westminster uh, on a reserved matter. Uh, And admittedly, in a a rather different context, uh, that is an issue which appears at the moment to have been decided the wrong way for them. Are they political on the Supreme Court? Do you think they'll look at the consequences of the decisions, the arguments that may result if one decision is taken and not the other, the turbulence that might result? They will simply look uh, at the relevant law. Um, They're not concerned with politics. Now, interestingly, Lord Sumption was one of the judges in the case July 2018 when Scottish Government's continuity bill was taken to court by the Westminster Government. The Supreme Court delayed the hearing of that case to give the Westminster Government time to change the Withdrawal Act 
so that things that were legal in the Scottish government's bill became unlawful. Now, that always seemed to me to be pretty sharp practice, I have to say. We'll have to see what they come up with. But Lord Sumption has just said they're not political. We'll find out. Another podcast that we enjoy and follow is the Byline Times. Byline Times, if you've got any spare cash, is a really good one to subscribe to. They provide a newspaper. There is also a TV channel, a radio and a podcast. They're entirely supported by subscribers. It's a really good source of independent journalism. A couple of weeks ago, the Byline Times featured my Oakland South Perthshire MP, John Nicholson, in what was a very interesting interview, well worth listening to the whole thing. Now, the host of that podcast had invited questions to be submitted for John. So Steve from the Indie Life podcast team came up with a question on the subject of the Supreme Court. So here's the question and here's John's response. Steve Callaghan says, did Scotland lose soft power in the judicial changes that led to the creation of the Supreme Court? He's thinking of the current situation plus the previous continuity bill where the Supreme Court delayed hearing allowed the UK government time to retrospectively change acts. I think that's an excellent question. I, I think um, we've seen Westminster ever since the formation of the Scottish Parliament attempt to eat away uh, the Scottish Parliament's powers. Uh, at the time of Brexit, which I fiercely opposed, as did uh, the, the, the SNP and, and indeed the vast majority of Scottish politicians across the political spectrum, we were promised that one side effect of it would be to see a return of powers from Brussels uh, to Holyrood. But in fact, uh, that wasn't what happened at all. And Westminster enhanced it power, its powers, grabbing powers from Brussels, but not transferring them to to Holyrood or indeed to Cardiff. Um, so I think it's it's been it's it's been a retrograde step. Uh, I mean, of course, in the old days, you used to have to appeal to the House of Lords, which was hardly a progressive or a good place uh, for for Scottish law to be decided in the days before we didn't even have a Scottish Parliament. Uh, the Supreme Court, I think, hasn't really been going long enough for us necessarily to know what long-term effect it will have in its judicial decisions with regard to Scotland. I think we'll probably need more case law to determine that. But it's going to have a very important role coming up soon because if the next Conservative leader again refuses to honour the, the mandate given to the SNP and Greens and refuses to respect the Holyrood Scottish Parliament legislating for a referendum, then the First Minister has said that will go to the Supreme Court to determine. Is there the possibility of Scotland doing a Catalonia if you're if you receive support at the ballot box at the next election and having, as it were, an unsanctioned referendum? The situation of Scotland and Catalonia is very different. Scottish unionist politicians, some of them, have tried to use this over the years. But the situation is very different for a whole variety of different reasons. Uh, I mean, first of all, the Spanish government has always said, well, certainly recently has said, that it doesn't see any parallels between Scotland and uh, Catalonia because it doesn't recognise Catalonia's right to secede because it says in the Spanish constitution that Spain is indivisible because it ultimately will never recognise any referendum ever. And we know that 
most Westminster politicians, at least in theory, say that this is a voluntary union and Scotland has the right to secede. In fact, Michael Gove was asked this question point blank by Andrew Marr on his programme before he left the BBC. He said, does Scotland have the right to withdraw from the United Kingdom? And Michael Gove said, yes, of course it does. So the, the parallels... Uh, simply aren't there. Of course, Scotland has a history of being a separate country which joined the United Kingdom um, uh, supporters of the Union would argue willingly. Um, historians would mostly say unwillingly, at least uh, as far as the the average person in the street was concerned. The, the folk who voted for it uh, were, to a large extent, bribed and were the aristocrats who then formed the majority of uh, representatives in the Scottish Parliament in 1707. So is that a no then, that, that Scotland wouldn't propose a, a kind of a referendum without the approval either of the Supreme Court or the Westminster Parliament? Well, what the, the First Minister has, has laid out the route as she sees it, and it will be, first of all, that she d talks to Boris Johnson's successor when she or he is elected in September, says, let's do what we did in 2014. Let's have a grown-up discussion. Uh, let, let's agree on a referendum, the wording of the referendum question and a date. And then you argue your case, I'll argue mine, and let's put it to the people. But if we find that the, the new leader says no to that, and I certainly hope that won't happen. And I don't believe it's necessarily the case that it will happen, because I think to keep saying no, it in fact strengthens the case for those of us who believe in Scottish independence. I don't think it helps the unionists for that to happen. But if somebody, the new leader says no, then we go to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court rules um, against us, then we would put it to the people at the next general election. We would make the issue an independence election and let the people decide then. Yeah, great question there, Steve. Well done. And that's an interesting throwaway from John at the end there, saying that it's by no means a done deal that the new Tory leader would carry on refusing a Section 30 order. Well, I don't know. That interview was a couple of weeks ago. And since then, an appalling cast of reality show wannabes has been whittled down to Richie Rich and Liz Truss. Currently, both of them are running around promising to cut taxes for all their rich friends, saying how Thatcherite their credentials are. Not an obvious vote winner in Scotland. They certainly don't seem to be paying too much attention to what the polls are telling us. But one man is, and that is Professor John Curtis, political scientist at the University of Strathclyde. People's stance on the question of whether or not there should be a referendum is more or less synonymous with their stance on whether or not Scotland should be independent or should remain inside the Union. Uh, one poll, for example, that simply asked people, should there be another referendum, found over 90% of people who say they would vote yes in a referendum saying there should be a ballot and over 90% of people who uh, say that they Scotland should remain inside the Union are opposed to a ballot. There, are, there isn't a large body of people out there whose views on whether or not there should be a referendum are in any sense divorced from their views on the substantive issue that that referendum right. would be about. To suggest that the polls have not moved significantly since 2014 is something of misreading. Um, there are two ways in which the character of public support for independence has changed. Back in 2014, despite all the arguments about whether or not an independent Scotland could be a continuing member of the European Union, 
Actually, people's attitudes towards the European Union were unrelated to whether or not they voted yes or no. But since the Brexit referendum, there's been a resorting of the support for independence in Scotland, such that now it's clear that a majority of people who voted Remain in 2016 think that Scotland should be an independent country, whereas amongst those who voted Leave, probably not as many as a third are in favour of independence. So that's changed the character support for independence. This is no longer a debate simply about independence. It's also about Brexit. At the moment, yes, support for independence is as low as it has been for the last three years, but it's still as high as 48%. The polls still show Scotland divided down the middle. And really, for the last three years or so, over the piece of the last three years, Scotland has been more or less divided down the middle on the, on the substantive question, whereas prior to 2019, uh, it was still the case that no, uh, uh, fairly continuously, uh, uh, we're still in the lead. Is resistance futile at this point? Because resistance perhaps drives swing voters into Nicola Sturgeon's camp if they say, we're not going to have anything to do with your referendum. Continuously arguing about process doesn't help you to win converts on the question of the union. If you want to make Scotland's membership of the union safe, you need to move the dial of public opinion so that it is clear that if there were to be a referendum, Scotland would vote no. The unionist problem at the moment is they cannot assume right. that Scotland would vote no again if there were, were to be another referendum. It's 50-50 at the moment. Each side faces that, that gamble. Yeah, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon is making an enormous gamble in pushing for a referendum because she can't be sure that she can win. But equally, neither can those on the unionist side. We are talking about uh, an issue where, you know, once the polls are as close to 50 as they have, as they have been and have been con- pretty much continuously for the last three years, the only honest answer that any pollster can give you as to what the outcome of a referendum would be is that we just don't know what would happen. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. It is quite noticeable at Westminster how they seem to have three attack lines scribbled on the the inside of their cuffs. One is the Scottish education system, one's either our NHS or our drug deaths, and one is ferries. If you're anything like me, you probably spend a lot of time screaming at the screen when our MPs ask a perfectly sensible question and they're met with just a ridiculous, non-thought-out, automatic attack line, which bears no relation to the question they were asked. I have noticed recently, though, that there has been quite a change in tactics from the SNP MPs, and they've taken to prefacing their questions with positive facts about Scotland. And it often wrong-foots the ministers because they've got programmed into their head what their responses are supposed to be, but they clearly don't really understand them or know any of the detail. So when they're confronted with something quite different, they just end up blustering and stammering and, and looking like idiots, which is great. So I've started collecting a few of those, and the next three clips you're going to hear are excellent examples of this first one is Patricia Gibson, the second one is Philippa Whitford and the third is Deirdre Brock. That Patricia Gibson question, Dominic Raab's answer is such an absolute classic. We were so astonished to hear him say it that we tweeted out the little clip. It's only about 45 seconds. So far that tweet has had over 30,000 views. It just shows you that if they're clever, they can get their point across. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As Tory MSP Murdo Fraser points out, 
Scotland has a third of Britain's landmass, half its territorial waters, over 60% of UK fishing zones, 98% of oil reserves, 63% of natural gas, a quarter of Europe's offshore wind resources and 90% of the UK's fresh water. Can the Deputy Prime Minister explain if his opposition to Scottish independence is because he fears the loss of these invaluable resources? Deputy Prime Minister. She's absolutely right in what she just said. There are huge assets right across Scotland, and that's why we think we're stronger together in delivering, in delivering for the people of Scotland. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Due to Scottish Government investment in affordable housing, the Scottish child payment and extended free school meals, Scotland has the lowest level of child poverty in the UK. In contrast to the North East, which has risen by 50% on the watch of this government. In contrast, the Prime Minister took over £1,000 from the poorest families, so much for levelling up, and those fighting to replace him have been falling over themselves to promise tax cuts to the wealthy. So if the UK is meant to be a voluntary union, does he not recognise that voters in Scotland have the right to a referendum so they can choose a fairer future? A recent Eurostat project showed that Scotland has the highest educated population in Europe, with more than 50% educated of 25 to 61 year olds to degree level. And Scotland has recently had their second highest university applications in history, second only to last year's record. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies last year said that cuts to education state spending in England had hit the most deprived schools hardest. In 2019, the then Children's Commissioner wrote to the government urging it to take action to stem a shameful increase in pupils leaving education without basic qualifications. Uh, and in April 2020, the Daily Mail uh, said that the lowest number of A-levels were awarded in England since 2004, and concerns have been raised about the lack of transparency in the government's flagship academy school. So can we have a debate in government time on why his government is failing to keep up with the improvements Scotland is making? Of course, this new approach hasn't stopped our MPs pointing out injustice where they see it, and the next couple of clips are good examples of that. One is Gavin Newlands talking about the difference in what ScotRail is charged for rail charges compared to the North East. The second one is Mary Black giving as good as she gets, as always. I want to thank the Rail Minister for the response I received uh, this week on the inordinately high, uh, high track access charges that ScotRail has to pay. It's not particularly helpful, but I do thank her uh, nonetheless. I wonder then if the Secretary of State could explain in detail while ScotRail, running broadly similar services by distance travelled, had to fork out £340 million versus Northern Rail's £150 million. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Now, given that the UK wields the most control over the Scottish economy, my question is pretty simple. Why are independent countries, similar to Scotland, wealthier, more productive, have higher social mobility, have lower poverty levels, a smaller gender pay gap, and lower inequality. In other words, can you not see that when it comes to Scotland, it's this government and this union that's holding us back? Well, before I answer the Honourable Honourable Lady's uh, question, uh, may I just congratulate her on her recent wedding? Uh, And and although we will disagree on many subjects, uh, on this one I hope we can agree that a union is better than independence. On on the substance of our question, 
This union has been one of the most economically productive in history, and only the separatists could believe that the creation of a hard border between Scotland and England, when 60% of Scotland's exports are to the rest of the United Kingdom, only the separatists could believe uh, that creating such a hard border would be in our economic and social interests. Very black. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I, I welcome his warm words to me, but I would like to remind him that unions have to be voluntary as well. Yeah. Uh, the, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives has actually changed his view on the Prime Minister three times in six months. So why then does this government refuse to let people in Scotland change their view after eight years? Well, a couple of things to pick up on there. First of all, you'll notice that the minister repeatedly referred to separatists. Uh, Perhaps we should wish our American cousins happy separation day from the 4th of July. They were repeatedly told they were too poor to make it alone. And yet they seem to be doing not too bad without Westminster. The other issue to pick him up on is this repeated nonsense about 60% of your trade goes to England and there'll be hard borders. Well, it is true that a lot of our trade goes to England, but the real point is that trade goes both ways. So why would England want to put any barriers in place to their trade that doesn't have to be there, especially as they become increasingly isolated due to the Brexit that they voted for? Scotland in the EU is going to have 27 borders suddenly open up to it. Okay, there will be customs controls on the Scottish-English land border, But customs controls don't need to be at the border. One of our main shows in August is going to be on the topic of borders. And not only do we hear from a range of experts, we also have an interview with Ruth Ritchie, who lives in the borders, about what's important to the people who live on the border. What are their concerns? What does the common travel area mean? Does it solve their problems? They think it does. The podcast version of that show will be out on Friday, 19th of August, and the YouTube version will be available from the following Tuesday, the 23rd. So here's a little taster clip from Ruth Ritchie, and she has a very positive view of what the border could be and the benefit it could bring to the south of Scotland. I would build, first of all, a border visitor centre. I would celebrate all the 800-odd years of our history. It would be a massive tourist attraction and easily accessible to the whole of the Europeans. Plus, you'd have the, your, your people from the other parts of the world now flying into Scotland because it's much more easy to then do Europe once you're in Scotland. I would also construct a venue for, for artists, for shows, for concerts, for events. There are people who already can't or won't come and tour in Britain because of the, the problems of accessing here. So if Scotland's in the EU, You've got lovely, easy access to the rest of the 27 countries. You build a nice venue close to the border because we need that investment. We need those jobs. You provide not only jobs uh, and everything else that comes with it, of course, um, for the local community, but you know we, we've still got family and friends and neighbours in the country next door. And we don't want our family not to be able to see a band that they love. So why wouldn't they come with the nice, easy to, to access common travel area? Spend a couple of nights in our bed and breakfasts and our guest houses and our hotels and buying the food in our cafes and restaurants, visiting some of the other things that are here. 
and going to that big venue and seeing something that they would love to see that they're currently prevented from doing so. What, what a fabulous thing to be able to do. Best of both worlds, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You're listening to Bits and Pieces. For the final section of our Bits and Pieces podcast for this month, we have to talk about the weather, or more accurately, the climate. I live in Clackmallanshire, and although it was definitely hot, we were blessed to have a cold breeze on the two days that it was over 40 in London. It got to 31 degrees in Clacks, but it didn't feel like 31 degrees. Um, I wouldn't know I was skulking inside anyway. But friends in Yorkshire were particularly not enjoying it, and I can only imagine with horror what it was like to be in London in the middle of that heatwave. To hear the minister talk about it at Westminster, you would think it was just a, a freak occurrence that was only going to last 36 hours, then they could forget all about it again. It seems much more likely that this is part of the pattern now. While we can still be guilty of forgetting one year to the next what it was like, as we do every winter when we're taken by surprise when it's cold and snowing, there can be very few people left who don't realise that this is a climate crisis. Unless, of course, you're a member of the Tory leadership race, in which case you're doing your best to row back on net zero commitments just in case they stop some people making money. The fact that their money will burn the same as everybody else's doesn't seem to have occurred to them. At Westminster, both Stephen Flynn and Brendan O'Hara made their points very forcefully. Stephen Flynn. Deputy Speaker, Martin Luther King once said that nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. So on that note, and with London boiling, can I ask the Minister for his thoughts on those Tory leadership candidates who are seeking to roll back our commitments on net zero? Renno O'Hara, the SNP spokesperson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And may I thank the Minister for prior sight of his statement. And let me begin by paying tribute to all of the emergency services who have once again gone above and beyond to help their fellow citizens in this time of crisis. And may I extend our sympathy also to those people whose homes and businesses have been destroyed by the fires that raged across parts of England. Mr Speaker, we may not have known anything like this before, with record temperatures being set in three of the four nations of the UK and with a symbolic 40 degree barrier being broken in England, but sadly, I predict that something like this is here to stay, and we're all going to have to live with it, and governments are going to have to prepare for it in the future. Mr Speaker, climate scientists have been warning us for decades that this day was coming, and it would be disingenuous in the extreme for anyone to claim that this was a one-off freak event, or even dare compare it to the summer of 1976. This is the climate emergency. This is exactly what we were told would happen if we didn't change our ways. Exactly. This is what COP26 was all about. And that's why those who are still part of this Tory leadership race cannot, must not, renege on their commitment to achieving net zero in return for securing votes from the party's base. So could the Minister tell me, where is the plan to increase and bolster resilience so that the government response in the future, the guaranteed future heat waves, is more coordinated and strategic than we have witnessed. And with melting roads, buckling rail tracks and dissolving runways, what plans are being considered to make our critical infrastructure more resilient to this type of heat? 
And finally, does he agree with me, and I suspect the majority of the country, that the optics of the Prime Minister deciding to party while parts of the UK literally burned showed a complete unawareness of lack of self-awareness and a complete dereliction of duty? Despite the heatwave, we can't forget the other crisis that's on the go, which is the heating crisis, the cost of heating, the cost of living. There will be people who are really struggling. Our podcast on the 12th of August is an episode of the environmental show Rising Clyde, and they're talking about a grassroots protest movement that's building up called Power to the People. It's about harnessing people power to take on the energy companies. It's also available if you want to watch it, Independence Lives YouTube as well. Here's a clip from the show to give you a flavour. So we're saying come together. We've got a whole load of information about debt, about how to support people, about taking on the, the energy companies, about preventing people from getting forced prepayment meters. So set up a local campaign in Glasgow, where me and Matt are. Um, and we've already got campaigns getting set up in uh, Inverness, Cumbernauld, Lanarkshire. And we're going into communities, we're knocking doors, we're talking to people, we're giving them the information that they need. And we are going to, some of us have got some experience in the anti tax campaign, go Google it for young people at call. And <laughs> it actually brought down Thatcher and it, it got a government change. And so we're going to use some of the things that we learned in that campaign, street by street, door by door, encourage people to join up and get involved in this campaign to both support people in their community but also, and to put demands in the council to, to open uh, community warm centres in their community, but also to come together and protest as well. And we've got a really big protest planned. That's the first thing that we're going to take to the energy companies and the government. Instead of sitting shouting at the telly or being really angry yeah. or, or just feeling powerless to do anything, coming together really makes a difference. I can I can vouch for it. I can recommend it. And so that's one of the things that we're going to be doing. We'll be in the doors this week in Glasgow talking to people and hearing what people have got to say as well about the campaign. And everybody's got skills and, and energy and ideas to bring. We're going to be a very talented bunch fighting this by the time we finish. That protest that they talked about is on the 12th of August at four o'clock and it's at the Scottish Power Headquarters in Glasgow. There is a Power to the People Glasgow Facebook page. You'll get the details there. The Scottish Government is particularly good at having consultations. They have a whole page on their website which is called We Asked, You Said, We Did. And on there you can see all the open consultations which you're welcome to give your views to and those have taken place. Two on the go at the moment, both uh, open until September, you might want to take part in. One is to do with land reform, and that's sponsored by Mary McCallum. And the other is to do with species diversity, which is being promoted by Lorna Slater. Mary and Lorna are spending their summer break going round parts of Highlands and Islands, parts of Scotland, to gather views on land reform, particularly from the perspective of community rights. The balance of power, really, is what it's about. Lorna had a very passionate plea for biodiversity in Scotland. We don't seem to be making a lot of progress. So here's Lorna to explain a little bit more about how important it is and how we can help. In uh, November 2019, just before the pandemic hit, Nature Scott published a key report called The State of Nature Scotland. Drawing on the best available data on Scotland's biodiversity, it was produced by a partnership of conservation bodies, including research institutes, the Scottish and UK government, and thousands of dedicated volunteers. 
So I'm going to start by pulling out a few key statistics from this report. The conclusions are pretty stark. There has been no let up in the net loss of nature, which is pretty brutal to hear because this report covers the last 30 years in which we have actually been making efforts at conservation. The data tells us what many people, especially perhaps people who've been around for a while, probably already know that nature is in drastic decline across all measures. And of course, that very frightening trend is not confined to Scotland. It applies across UK, Europe and the world as a whole. This is the point that I'll come back to because it constitutes an existential threat, not only to all forms of life with whom we share the planet, but of course, to our own species as well. We too are a part of nature and we should not see ourselves as being apart from it. The State of Nature report looked at 352 different species in Scotland. On average, their numbers had dropped by 24% since 1994. A devastating loss. And that's while we've been trying to protect things. Birds, mammals, moths, butterflies, 60% of species showed negative trends. From 1994 to 2019, there was a 38% decline in the numbers of breeding seabirds. And this was before the outbreak of bird flu, which as many of you know, is currently devastating some populations of birds, especially seabirds. And we are in danger of seeing imminent extinctions of some species in Scotland as a result. 11% of the 6,413 species assessed on the red list in Scotland are at risk of extinction. Sadly, that includes the harvest mouse. There have been only five sightings of it in Scotland in the last 20 years. If Robert Burns was alive today, it was unlikely he'd have had the inspiration to write his famous poem to a mouse. The nature of Scotland is a key part of national identity. It matters for our culture as well as our well-being. And I think it also matters for our legacy, for what we hand on to future generations. What does it say about our stewardship and sense of responsibility? We have the opportunity to pass along something richer and more abundant, and we should take that. Some of the key pressures that the State of Nature uh, Scotland report identified, for example, agricultural management, climate change, woodlands, upland management, the land reform measures we're putting forward can help push back on some of these pressures and create a bit more space for nature to recover. In particular, I think there is scope for the strengthening of the land rights and responsibilities statement and the introduction of compulsory management plans to bring about greater accountability in use and management of land, more community engagement and the higher standards of stewardship to ensure that larger landowners are doing their bit to meet Scotland's net zero and biodiversity goals firmly believe that action on climate change and biodiversity is a benefit to rural communities. They're linked to the land and the long-term interests and opportunities that they derive from it. The government has a key role to make sure that really important habitats like this blanket bog at Flanders Moss are protected and enhanced. Climate change and biodiversity are two sides of the same coin. Peatlands like this, when they are healthy, are not only abundant in biodiversity, critters, mosses, plants, but they store a lot of carbon, pulling it out of the atmosphere. So much of our peatland in Scotland is degraded that it is actually releasing carbon, not storing it. So adding to our emissions instead of helping mitigate it, it needs to be restored. Peatlands are an integral part of Scotland's cultural and natural heritage and cover about a quarter of, a, of our land area, storing over 3 billion tonnes of carbon. There need to be incentives for landowners to do the right thing and penalties for doing the wrong thing.
So if you have a spare five minutes, why not jump onto the Scottish Government consultation website and give your views. That's just about it for our July bits and pieces. Hope you've enjoyed that. Next Friday's podcast is also on the topic of land reform, or in this case, radical tax reform using a system of ground rent. We've got a guest, Graham McCormack, who will be telling us all about his system. It's a fascinating proposal, um, so you can hear all about that on Friday. Don't forget you can get in touch with us by email. That's IndieLifePodcasters at gmail.com or Twitter. We're at Scottish IndiePod. We have the website podcasts at independencelive.net and we have just set up a public channel on our discord server which is a means for you to chat with any of the team or whoever of us is around or leave us messages we'll put the invitation link for that in the notes from this podcast and finally if you're not already signed up for our newsletter why not do that too we just give you a monthly roundup of what we've been up to and what's coming up in the the next month so lots of ways to get in touch we'd love to hear from you thanks for listening bye now you've been listening to indie jigsaw bits and pieces I'm a piece of